Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Supernatural George, the podcast. I'm Mittens, and today I'm going to start by recording a bit that I almost decided to make into a separate episode, but I figured it was easier just to kind of smush it on the beginning of the podcast for uh, season one, episode four, Phantom Traveler. There's a lot of early behind the scenes stuff that I think is really interesting when you look at what Kripke, his original ideas were for the narrative and what actually ended up airing because it's vastly different. I'd just like to talk about that a little bit today before we we see the story grow into what the show that we all know and love. I'm going to start today by introducing a couple of new segments that are sort of more businessy like things, but are still important to me. So first of all, let's have the oops segment where I <laughs> screwed up last week and said that it it was the Ackles Ass Equation episode in Dead in the Water, but it is not. It is actually in this episode, Phantom Traveler. And for some reason, when I was I my brain picked that up when I was looking at my tag for Phantom Traveler instead of my tag for Dead in the Water. So the Ackles Ass Equation is in this episode, which is part of a really important scene because it it's a again, about Dean and fear and vulnerability and how he rationalizes his behavior and what we've referred to for years in the meta community as performing Dean. And this is a part of it. And it's so it's something we're going to talk about when we get into the episode. But apologies last week for mixing up which episode that shot was in. Hopefully this will fix it. I will link it in the post I make about this episode so everybody can go see the mathematical glory of Jensen's butt. Second of all, I had started writing up a bunch of stuff about things that I wished I had mentioned last week but didn't. And and, and it's, it's not even really specific to Dead in the Water, but it's just this topic that I mentioned of wanting to address Kripke's original vision for the show. I mean, it's it's been sort of blown out of reality by fandom over the years because later on down the line, Kripke will talk about his five-year plan, quote-unquote, but he didn't have a five-year plan until he was like four and a half years into the show. Because <laughs> if you go back and listen to his earlier interviews, he was very much talking about the narrative as a seat of their pants kind of thing in the beginning. They had general ideas for the show. And until the end of season three, he had a zero angels policy. There were going to never be angels or heaven or God on the show. So obviously that went out the window. So, I mean, every time you hear one of his earlier interviews or him talking about the early days of the show, it becomes really obvious really fast that they did, there was no such thing as a five-year plan for the narrative when they began making the show. It's just funny to me how so many people in fandom insist this was his vision. He knew from the start how season five was going to... No, he didn't. He had no freaking clue. <laughs> so I just want to talk about the creative side of the show in a realistic and factual way instead of in the fandom way that has been adopted as reality, even though it is nothing to do with actual reality. So anytime you hear someone talking about, oh yeah, the five-year plan or Kripke's 
Kripke's original story that he that was his creative vision and baby. It's like, no, that that's that's a fantasy that does not exist in reality. And and talking about it that way does a disservice to, you know, all the writers, all the creators, all the editors and everyone who worked on the show and Kripke himself. So it's best to acknowledge that this wasn't some pristine, pure part of canon that was the true canon of Supernatural. And then everything that came after it is is lesser somehow for not being part of that quote unquote original vision, because season four wasn't part of that original vision. Season three wasn't part of that original vision. The writer's strike interrupted all of the plans they had even just within season three. So talking about the show as if it was some, if any part of it was more authentic or more valid than any other part is honestly, if if someone is insisting on doing that, their opinion really isn't worth listening to because they're speaking from their own made up fanon that does not exist in reality. And I'm here to talk about reality. So that said, I also want to mention writer and director and anything that I might know about behind the scenes stuff that happened in an episode. This episode was the first one directed by Robert Singer. So that's a interesting introduction to our he'd been involved in the show since earlier, but this was his first directorial effort. And it was rich written by Richard Hatem. Okay, he wrote this episode and Asylum, which we'll get to later in the season. But he's he's not a writer that a lot of the writers in season one are not people who stayed with the show long or are the writers that we all think of from later seasons where, yeah, we can identify their style. We recognize how they write certain characters or their their thematic elements that they tend to lean into more. So it's that's less a little bit less interesting to me in the in the earlier days than it is later on. But I just want to get in the habit of starting to mention that every week, because you will start to pick up different writer style elements that do have a bearing on how the story unfolds. Also, regarding Kripke's earliest visions, I'll put a link to it if anyone is interested in reading it. It's all on my blog. I have a a tag supernatural script pages, but I think it's just SPN script pages that has links to pretty much every script that the general fandom has access to through the super wiki and through the efforts of groups like our new supernatural script hunt tumblr that our consortium of people who are pooling our resources and our knowledge about finding scripts and and trying to acquire as many as possible for everyone in the fandom to have access to because reading scripts and seeing the evolution of scripts from the arenas that are presented to the network which is basically just like a little summary blurb that's presented to the network, how scripts evolve from that into writer's drafts and are changed multiple times before they actually come to a production draft. And even after the production draft, you'll have the different colored pages that are added that are added or changed elements of the script. And it's interesting to see that process happen and what changes are made and what the original intent was versus what ended up being aired because of editorial changes or a a change was made to a previous script before production that necessarily meant there had to be changes in future scripts. So, So it just adds some interesting flavor to the process. 
But I think a great example is if any if you've read uh, Eric Kripke's original concept draft, it's the one I like to call the Harrison script, because they're not named the Winchesters, they're named the Harrisons in that script. It was very, very different. Sam had essentially grown up normal with, with relatives, and Dean had as well, but he'd left at some point and gone off and followed John, and John was apparently thought to be not mentally well and, like, hallucinating everything. He'd been, like, there was some insinuation that he'd been, like, in a psychiatric hospital for a period or something, but it's a very, very different script, and Dean is has just started learning about the supernatural and how it affected their lives, and Sam is completely oblivious to anything supernatural. He just thinks Dean's nuts at first. So seeing how that evolved into what we saw as the pilot episode, it's just so incredibly wildly different of a story. Even seeing how Kripke's original arenas, I reblogged it a few days ago because it, it came back up on my dash and I was like, oh, cool. That again, this is relevant to my podcast interests. This was ne- arenas written for the network on June 3rd, 2005. So they'd already filmed the pilot episode and presented that to the network and they were getting ready to start filming the first part of season one of Supernatural. And he promised a full fuller drafts of these arena ideas within a few, within a week um, in this letter. And I, I will link that as well in this blog. But it's fascinating because even the episode order is radically different. In this arena document, um, the order after the pilot was Bloody Mary, which actually aired as episode five instead of episode two. Hookman, which aired as episode seven, as opposed to episode three. It was originally slated to be episode three. Episode four was originally slated to be Wendigo, which aired as episode two. Episode five was originally slated to be Dead in the Water, which aired as episode three. And episode six was originally slated to be Bugs, which aired as episode eight. I know it's hard to do mental math on that much nonsense in a (laughs) spouted at you verbally, but there's two missing episodes there. There's no arena draft for Phantom Traveler, today's episode, episode four, or Skin. There's not even a conceptualization of the episode Skin, and it just skips right over and gives the next two, which I find fascinating, which also ties back into the fact which I wasn't going to mention until next week's episode, but it seems relevant today, that originally there was supposed to be more of a, a psychic or supernatural twist to Dean. And yet that didn't never, that never materialized. In the, I'm going to talk about Bloody Mary a little bit right now, just to, to point out what I'm talking about here, since, you know, hopefully everybody's already seen it anyways, even if it's been a while. In the scene at the end when they defeat Bloody Mary and... Sam's eyes bleed and he's got all the symptoms of being affected by Bloody Mary. Dean does too. Dean's eyes bleed. And that wasn't just a, oh no, she's mad. She's attacking everyone in sight. That was supposed to be a continuation of the thread that was started in Dead in the Water of Dean having some sort of psychic connection like Lucas did to the ghost in the water where he was getting visions or images or information from the ghost after having been traumatized by witnessing his father's death. 
this w- this had been intended to be Deed's plotline. And instead, what we got was the complete opposite. What we got was Dean as the human, the fully human character, and Sam as the one who had the visions and the demon blood and all of that. I don't even know if they had the idea of the demon blood in the in the pilot episode, but they did have this concept that Dean would have some sort of supernatural spidey sense of some sort or some sort of dark buried secret about himself that never came to fruition because the entire course of the series changed after they shot these first few episodes. Last weekend, Jerry Wanak did an interview about his set book, And I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but I've been told that in it, he mentioned problems with the filming of the episode Hookman, which was, again, originally scheduled to be the third episode of the series and ended up being the seventh. So because of those logistical issues, things had to be shuffled around a bit. So Bloody Mary was not, as Eric Kripke states in his arena, presented to the network in June before, when they were just about ready to start filming, Bloody Mary was supposed to be the direct follow-on to to the pilot, where they go to the coordinates in John's journal, and it takes them to Missouri. <laughs> this was supposed to have taken place in Missouri, and I guess that was too far of a stretch for John's coordinates. But can you see how that changes the entire tone of the early part of the series, rather than John's coordinates taking them to the Bloody Mary case, that it took them to the Wendigo case where they expected to find John waiting for them in the woods and instead found nothing of the sort. And Dean was convinced, well, he's never been here. He's never even been here. This was just to get us out of the way. And it's an interesting, an interesting change because I'm going to just link to this rather than spend hours and hours discussing things that didn't actually happen. I encourage everybody highly to go and read these. It's only like three pages of information, but it is so fascinating to me to go read what the original intent of these episodes were, what the original plot was, what the original monstrosity intended was, because it is just so different. Every single one of these episodes, these five episodes that he mentions in here, look nothing like these episodes. It's interesting that today's episode, Phantom Traveler, was not even conceived of when they went to the network with the first five episodes, even though this ended up, or the first six episodes, including the pilot, and yet it aired as episode four. They figured they needed to introduce demon lore. They needed to make it more central to the story than these random urban legend type monsters. It shows a vast tonal shift in the series, even going between early June of 2005, after they had shot the pilot, to when they began shooting the season, like a month later. I don't know exactly when shooting began, but considering the show began airing in September, I I think they had to have started shooting very shortly after that. The entire early part of the show, it, it makes it impossible to say that Eric Kripke had a vision and from the start and he always knew this was where it was going because it was very clear that he had a very different vision and the show took very different t- detours and the characters turned out to be very different people than he'd originally proposed. So I'm very glad to know that we have these 
archives of our fandom history where we can look back and see the wonderful story of growth that came from these early seeds of ideas and how they were transformed from what would have honestly been kind of a meh kind of series, (laughs) honestly. So good on the writing room, good on everybody, even good on the production issues and things they ran into, like with the Hookman episode that forced their hand to think more flexibly and to adapt the story to what they had to make of it. It's just an incredible series of coincidences basically that made supernatural into what we know and love and i'm grateful to it all but it wasn't Kripke, at least not on his own all right i think that concludes my business holdovers from last week and i'm going to at this point begin talking about phantom traveler let's start with the cut scene there is one cut scene in this episode It's when they arrive at the airport. Dean kind of drives like a madman into the parking lot and skids to a really terrible parking job. Maybe he wasn't used to driving baby yet. Who knows? But Jensen's driving skills definitely improved since then. He uh, has gotten a lot better at uh, parking in a reasonable manner, even when he's in a hurry. But they skid to a stop. They get out of the car and Dean like marches off toward the airport like the doom hanging over him. And Sam's like, uh, Dean, we can't go into an airport like this. And, you know, he makes him come back and Dean empties all his weapons into the trunk because, you know, he couldn't go through airport security with covered in weapons because <laughs> this was filmed, you know, in 2005. This was not long after Homeland Security became a thing and having to remove, you know, I don't even know if this was in have to remove your shoes to go through airport security yet. You know, this was early days of that sort of heavy duty security at airports. And it had been very recent developments that made air travel a lot more uh, invasively involved. (laughs) You know, even just a few years before that, it was you still had to go through security and, you know, you got, you had to go through the x-ray machines, but it wasn't like the invasive thing we know of now where, you know, you stand there and they scan your whole body and test everything for explosives. But Dean was still trying to get in there with all of his usual weapons and had to turn around and put them away. And is like, yeah, I feel naked now, which is kind of funny because he's still wearing like four layers of clothes. <laughs> but for him, naked is not having a weapon, which plays off another earlier scene in the episode, which we're going to talk about when we get there, because that's part of the Ackles ass equation scene, which plays a lot about vulnerability and his own fears and how he copes with those fears, which is a very huge part of who he is as a character. Since we basically get the same then segment for most of the first season of the show. The only thing I really need to say is this is about the point of the series where I always notice how Sam talks. He talks very quietly, almost like he's afraid his voice could be too loud. And in some ways it bothers me because just on a visceral level, I can't stand whispery talking. It just, yeah. It, it, it feels uncomfortable to me. So Sam's voice is kind of like grating to me in the beginning. And 
I don't know if it was a character choice or if it was just he had to talk quietly and this is just how Jared talks quietly in scenes, but it's interesting when his voice is soft and when he raises his voice because he's definitely capable of raising his voice and projecting his voice, but in almost this entire uh, previously on Supernatural segment, he's speaking in that, it's, it's... almost like he's afraid to speak louder. It's an interesting character choice and but every every scene in this clip just tr- hit that button for me and it's just it it just is uncomfortable. So I just I had to put that out there because that's just my personal reaction to it and I don't know if anyone else has noticed this whisperiness but it bugs me and I just needed to mention it so that I can move on with my life and <laughs> and talk about the rest of the show. Finally, we're moving into the I can tell Jerry Wanick was involved with this portion of the series. It starts off with the shot of what looks like a tropical beach and there's ukulele music playing. And then all of a sudden you hear an airplane noise and a man who looks really frazzled sits up. He gets up and he he like sits up into the shot and then he stands up and walks across the room he's in because he's not on a tropical beach you you can see out this big panoramic window oh this is nowhere near a beach this is like in some forest somewhere like northern climes it's not tropical at all so the just the 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 jarring nature of how that shot was used is great so he's clearly uh visibly looks like he doesn't feel well and he goes into the airport bathroom and is desperately like rinsing his face and behaving really nervously and another man in the bathroom's like oh nervous flyer and he gives him a statistic well what's the chances of even dying in a plane crash like one in 20,000 and it's just like why would you ever say this to somebody who's clearly visibly afraid of flying this is not helpful information you jerk you know like why would you even say this to somebody but my God, it's just like, well, at least it wasn't me he said that to because I probably would have kicked him in the nuts because, I mean, that's what that sort of comment deserves, right? You know, immediately after the jerk leaves the bathroom, we we get our very first shot of a demon ever in Supernatural. And honestly, it's just, I'm so glad that the VFX department worked out a better system than this, but oh boy. Like I referred to earlier in the in this podcast episode, Kripke rearranged a lot of the early part of the season very shortly before they began filming and created this episode where it had not existed even a month prior to when they were hammering out the beginning parts of the season. They specifically introduced a demon when I don't think they really had planned on introducing demons as a concept in the show this early, if at all. I mean, I I don't know if this was just the impetus for creating demons at all, or if they were trying to re-engineer things to introduce the concept of demons because of how the later parts of the season were beginning to develop in the writer's room. So either way, however it came to be, the fact that they introduced demon lore at this point and talked about it as something that Sam and Dean were really unfamiliar with, that this was something that had been kept from them, that they'd been sheltered from, both of them, including Dean, because we will find out later that John knew that it was a demon that had killed Mary. Sam and Dean don't don't even know that yet still. 
the fact that they are now introducing demon lore and showing us their introduction to hunting demons and what they know about demons because they literally know nothing at this point. And it will show in very bold stripes throughout this episode how little they know and how unprepared they are to face this demon. And it kind of makes me think that how they came across this case in the first place was demons putting this in their way because John was getting closer to them and trying to lure his children into danger and into demonic activity and forcing John's hand regarding dealing with demons and helping his children understand demons. It's also interesting because the lore around demons and what they know about demons grows sort of organically from this. I mean, there's things that obviously changed like this demon in this episode that I refer to as Specky the Wonder Demon because he looks like a swarm of gnats instead of the smooth smoke that we see in later episodes. Even visually, even how they move in this scene, we see the specks kind of hovering around him, like I said, like a swarm of gnats or, you know, flies or something. And they don't go in through his mouth like we will see every other demon on this show do. It goes in and out through their eyes, which is just the weirdest possible choice (laughs) visually. We'll also see what sort of powers demons have and what abilities we will see them evolve to have that they don't have in this episode. And we'll see like entirely different mechanics of demons but I, I, I want to illustrate each of those points as we get there because some of that can be attributed to the fact that Sam and Dean just don't have a good understanding of demons and are kind of going by the seat of their pants and scraping whatever lore they can in order to deal with this situation and hope they're even remotely close to being right about any of it. Some of it has to do with the fact that they hadn't really seemed to have nailed down what hurts demons and what banishes demons and a lot of that even what you know was maybe technical stuff in the writer's room that they still hadn't figured out yet on demon lore or if it's just sam and dean's lack of knowledge either way it still works and this is such a basic demon we never see a demon that's sort of this one note or this unintelligent i'm i want to say that's not the right word here but It's a demon that's really inflexible in, it it doesn't really seem to have like organized thoughts other than follow this pattern that guarantees my kills. It's almost more like a vengeful spirit in how it just sort of reenacts the same thing over and over again. And it's sort of stuck in a loop almost of reenacting this one thing rather than having any sort of motives or emotions or drives or existence outside of being this specky cloud of gnats that does this one thing the fact that demon lore that this is such a quote-unquote weak demon compared to you know a creature like crowley or ruby or meg or abaddon or any other demon we've ever seen on the show (laughs) like even stunt demon number three from a later season episode is just blows poor specky out of the water i don't know how this demon ever even got topside unless it was as I said, specifically engineered to lure Sam and Dean into a demon encounter to force their hands to learn about demons and to learn about demon lore and to be exposed to demons 
give them either a false sense of security around you that, you know, that they actually are developing skills to fight demons when we know what's going to be coming later down the line, even if the writers of the show had no clue yet. It's interesting to learn, you know, that they had been specifically sheltered from demons their whole lives and weren't, you know, John had not expose them to other demon hunts, even though Bobby will tell us by the end of the season that demons had been a rather rare thing to be seen on Earth. Like he'd only heard of a few cases every year. And then since the beginning of, you know, the series Supernatural, all of a sudden demons are popping up everywhere. So it's kind of like maybe there just weren't a lot of demons around to be exposed to and specialists in hunting demons would handle them. Someone like Bobby, maybe, who we will find out, you know, really knows his stuff when it comes to demons. But Sam and Dean, either through John's uh, protection of them by keeping them away from any sort of demon lore, since that's what killed Mary. And we find out later that John did know that for a very long time. Or if he had just tried to shelter them from something that was very rare and very dangerous anyway, either way amounts to the same. They're very inexperienced and we're learning right along with them. So the next time we see our specky possessed man, he's getting on a plane. We we are introduced to the flight attendant, Amanda, and the pilot, Chuck, who know each other. But as she greets him and he gets on the plane, he turns to her and flashes his black eyes. So now we know he's demon possessed. And it's interesting because... Back in the early days of the show, they didn't use VFX to make the black eyes. They wore black contacts and you can see the whites around the edges of his eyes. So it's kind of interesting how it doesn't completely fill his eyes the way we will see later season demons do because they do the black eyes or in the case of a crossroads demon, the red eyes with VFX. Even I believe like by the time Azazel gets introduced, the yellow eyes are not contacts, they're I think they might be even by that point. I'll have to look it up (laughs) when we get there. But it's interesting to know that it's not the usual just blink your eyes and it's like turning the black eyes on and off. It's a full shot of just him turning with the black eyes because it's contacts. It's not just painted in after the fact. But Amanda sees his eyes and is concerned. She's upset by it, but she doesn't know what else to do about it. So she just does her best to shake it off and go back to work. A little bit later into the flight, the possessed specky dude says <laughs> to asks his seatmate uh, how long they've been up in the air. And she says about 40 minutes. And he says, oh, boy, time really does fly. He gets up to stretch his legs, supposedly walks to the back of the plane, looks out the window by the emergency exit door and then pries the door open. Before he does, he flashes his black eyes at a innocent passengers sitting there yelling about what he's doing pries the door open goes flying off hits part of the tail of the plane and then of course the plane goes down we see chuck the pilot we see amanda the flight attendant and we see the specky guy go flying out of the plane i just have to say because that's like physically impossible if you you can't open a door in a pressurized plane it doesn't it doesn't work that way it doesn't just fly off like that it's like physically impossible to do just in case anybody was actually worried that that was that could happen on a plane it can't immediately after the plane goes down we get the the beautiful ackles ass equation shot 
we see Dean sleeping. He's on top of the covers, face down in his boxers and a t-shirt, bare feet and everything. And it's just, this is one of the few times we'll ever see him this dressed down until they get, until they live in the bunker where he feels secure. It's kind of telling that it takes that long for him to get back to a place where he can even feel that secure about taking his boots off even, you know? We will mostly see him sleeping fully clothed with his boots on. He'll take his jacket off or his heavier shirt off, but we, we rarely see him this exposed. And that plays into part of the whole, oh my God, they're naked when they're just wearing a t-shirt. <laughs> the, the jokes that we make in fandom, but this is why. Dean does not like to be this vulnerable. In this early part of the series, I mean, we have to assume that he felt relatively secure a lot of the time, even hunting on his own, to be dressed like this and this unprepared to go it should, you know, something find them or storm their room. Just staying at a random hotel with no when they're not on a case yet. He doesn't feel like the supernatural is always coming for him yet. And by the end of this season, he'll know that's not true. The supernatural has always been coming for him directly and personally his whole life. I think he loses a bit of his ability to be this carefree with how he is. He's not always ready to fight. He's not always completely on. Even in this scene where we're see he's got a knife under his pillow. He's not completely vulnerable because something comes in, he can kill it. But he's also not ready to jump up at a moment's notice and run out the door either, which he tends to be even later in this season. Dean expresses his concern that Sam is not sleeping. It's 545 in the morning and Sam comes back into their room with coffee. Dean has only been sleeping a few hours himself. He said he got he woke up at 3, 3 a.m. and Sam was watching TV, so he knows Sam's not sleeping. And at first he expresses the concern in the joking way he does, like, oh, where does the day go? And mentioning to Sam that he doesn't really care if Sam's sleeping well or not, but he needs Sam sharp because Sam's his backup and is there to help keep him alive. I mean, that's sort of the way we will see when we get to the flashback episodes to their childhood that Dean has always talked to Sam, making it sound like giving Sam more responsibility than he actually does give him. And even Sam recognizes this. I know that's just bullshit. You're just hyping it up. And it's interesting that Dean then tries, well, you're still having nightmares about Jess. And he's trying to be real with Sam, but, and Sam, of course, doesn't want to talk about it, and we will find out more about his nightmares, but he's not talking about it yet. Sam asks if Dean ever has trouble sleeping himself, and like, is, does this job ever keep you up at night, like, afraid to sleep? And Dean is not afraid to sleep. You know, he doesn't have nightmares about the things they hunt or whatever, and Sam pulls out a, a knife from under his pillow and is like, so then what's this if you're not afraid? And Dean is absolutely right. It is a precaution. But this is part of the mask of Dean that is able to swagger in the face of his own fear and has learned coping strategies to cope with his own fear so that he could sleep because he's been dealing with this since he was almost five. So in 22 years, he's built up a lot of walls and a lot of 
compartmentalizing his own fears so that he can still continue to function in ways that Sam can't in the face of his own trauma now. He doesn't have those coping skills based on his own trauma the way Dean does. And Sam is just beginning to learn this. Because Dean's right. A knife under your pillow for him is just practical. And that probably gives him the reassurance to sleep well, knowing that this knife is right here at his fingertips, knowing that he is not defenseless in any situation, that he's always prepared, even when he's in his skivvies and barefoot in bed asleep. That's probably the only way he's been able to convince himself it is safe to sleep. So Dean's 2005 flip phone rings and he pops it open and it's a man named Jerry Panowski, who was someone that Dean and John had helped rid his, rid him of a poltergeist a few years back. And this is a case that Sam is entirely unfamiliar with because he was at Stanford at the time. I have to confess here my personal fondness for Jerry because <laughs> I wrote an entire fic based at his airport that takes place in a, I think, season 12-ish, post-season 13 maybe I don't remember it was a couple years ago now where a case fic where they go back to the airport because there's monster activity and Jerry has alerted them to that again but it sort of ends up being a sort of leverage style fic but um it's called the terminal job if anyone wants to look it up and read it I can link that in there too but if you can't get enough of airport fic that's for you <laughs> So we learn a little bit about the previous case that Dean and John worked for Jerry, the poltergeist. He credits them with having saved his life. And Dean gives Sam a little proud smile like, remember this thing that we do about saving people and hunting things? Yeah, this is this is it. This man is here alive because of what we did for him. We saved him, him and his family. Now that he knows what the supernatural is, Look, he's going to help us save more people. At least that's their goal. Jerry also asks Sam about his time in college because apparently when they met before, John talked about Sam nonstop and Jerry could tell that John was really proud of Sam and Sam is shocked to hear this information because he thought John had abandoned him and told him to never come back. So it's kind of eye-opening for Sam, even if he does forget this later. It's not something that had ever been told to him by John or even by Dean because Dean's got his own issues with John and what Dean thinks John's relationship with him is versus Sam. Dean was raised always thinking that John favored Sam or was more protective of Sam and cared more about Sam. And because to Dean, he was just John's little soldier who was obedient and except when he failed, he was either rewarded or punished based on his own exceed, you know, meeting or exceeding John's expectations or failing them. He doesn't really think of himself having the sort of relationship with John that Sam, John had towards Sam because he all, he knew about John's pride in Sam. You know, he spent his whole life following John's orders to protect Sam at all costs. So how does that make Dean feel if he's not worth protecting at all costs? You know what I mean? So I think this is really eye-opening for Sam, but it's going to be a long time before he can actually see the other side of this coin too. So during this whole scene, they're walking through uh, an airplane hangar filled with planes being worked on, mechanics all over the place. It's obviously a very busy facility, a big and busy facility, which I didn't know existed in Catanic, Pennsylvania, but 
here we go. So that's one more point on the tally sheet of their world is not our world. Their Catanic, Pennsylvania obviously has an international airport. Ours does not. Um, It has a little airfield. (laughs) The other thing is Jerry mentions that he tried to call John and couldn't reach him. And Dean had to make the excuse that he was wrapped up in another job. We'll find out at the end of the episode. Dean will ask him, how'd you get my number anyways? I haven't had it that long. And apparently he got it from John's voicemail, which Dean apparently hadn't checked in a while. I'll go into more detail on that at the end of this episode. But for right now, all Dean knows is he did try to call John first, couldn't reach him, and then called Dean. So poor Dean's already thinking of himself as the second string. You know, he's... He's when their main quarterback is injured or off off on the bench. Dean's the one they throw in the game to pick up the pieces. Jerry plays the cockpit voice recorder tape for them, or it's a CD. They've really upgraded, but he plays the recording for them. And they notice like the weird sounds at the end of the recording as the plane is crashing that we associate with demonic activity on the show. There's seven people who've survived this crash and they they're going to interview them but in order to check out the uh, wreckage of the plane to scan it for any sort of supernatural evidence they have to get past the ntsb warehouse uh where they have it all locked down as evidence that they're analyzing to try and figure out what made the plane crash you know in the very most human way sam and dean want to analyze it from the very not human way So in order to get into a locked warehouse, being guarded by the NTSB, Dean one-ups them. We see their first time going to a copy shop to make fake IDs. And it's just amazing what Dean can make in a short time in a, you know, a Kinko's type place. Except this one's called Copy Jack, which is kind of funny. (laughs) Jack, anything Jack in this show obviously makes us think of Jack at the end of the series, but copy Jack. So they create their first and hijack in a plane episode. They make their first Homeland security fake IDs. And Sam is like, whoa, this is this is really illegal, even for us. And it's like, oh, you sweet summer children. You know, (laughs) this is nothing compared to what you guys are going to get into later on. And that's how this whole episode feels to me now. There's so much of that. Oh boy, they were just so, so innocent back then. Sam finds EVP EVP on the cockpit voice recording of a, a spooky voice saying no survivors, which Dean is first concerned that there were seven survivors. So what does this no survivors mean? And then they begin to speculate, well, maybe it was a haunted flight. They mentioned Flight 401, and I have to talk about it because Flight 401 was an Eastern Airlines flight um, from New York to Miami that crashed in 1972. And pieces of the plane were supposedly repurposed and used in other planes, and they were supposedly haunted by the pilot and co-pilot and some of the flight crew where their ghosts were supposedly sighted on several other different planes that parts of the crashed plane had been put into. And I I know so much about this. My dad worked for Eastern Airlines at that time when I was a kid. This 1972 was before I was born, but 
not much before I was born. But I heard these stories when I was a kid, when flying on one of the other planes that had been fitted, you know, my dad would like, you know, we did we see a ghost, you know. So this was like a thing that just was like an inside joke at Eastern Airlines for years, apparently. I just find it interesting that that was part of the basis for them writing this episode was haunted plane parts. And because we never really do get a reason for why this demon was haunting this plane specifically or why it went after planes at all, really. So it's just interesting to wonder why. (laughs) That's my connection to it. Um, Eastern Airlines Flight 401 was the example. So they believe at this point that it's a ghost possibly haunting this plane. And in that case, it could quite possibly be just a one-off incident and there may be nothing further to investigate because so far all they've got is one plane crash. As they go to interview one survivor, the the man who had called out the demon's activity as he was opening the plane door and screamed and kind of alerted everybody else, hey, what are you doing? He's checked himself into a psychiatric hospital because he's been traumatized by this event and it's another lesson for us in how to hunt, the questions that they ask, if they heard any voices or if he saw anything strange on the flight. The questions we're we're seeing are very different from what the sorts of questions they were asking last week about a potential monster in a lake. We're already learning what they suspect it is based on the sorts of questions they're asking witnesses. He insists he didn't see anything until finally Sam coaxes it out of him with, we'll believe whatever whatever you think you saw. If you think you saw something weird, we want to hear about it. And so he describes the man with the black eyes and how he pried the door open. So Sam asks if the man he saw happened to flick flicker, like we know ghosts can do that flicker in and out. And the guy's like, what are you nuts? So like, even after describing the black eyed man who could pry open an airplane door mid flight, he thinks, oh, it's nuts to think that that creature might have been flickery. <laughs> like, <laughs> so that was one question too far. They know it's probably not a ghost now. It's, it's an actual corporeal being, as we heard a couple weeks ago. Now that they know they have a suspect on who was opened the door and who was the black-eyed man, they go and interview and they know what seat he was sitting in. They go to interview his widow and she informs them that her husband had been terrified of flying. So he, we, we saw that at the beginning of the episode, but again, there's so much in these early episodes that's about fear and Dean's reaction to fear and how he manages his own fears by putting on this swagger and, you know, Sam is confronting that for himself now Obviously, we'll find out Dean also has a fear of flying later in this episode. It's just interesting how fear is presented now. They also ask the widow if there's anything weird about her husband. I mean, they're nicer than I am being right now. Um, But they suspect he might be not human. So they're asking about his history. Like, is there anything unusual about him? And all she can come up with is, well, he had acid reflux. So yeah, I think they're operating on completely different, you know, as far as she knew, her husband was just as human as anyone else. So this, they've already ruled out ghosts. What other kind of 
non-human thing could he be? This is the all, also the first episode where we see Dean getting talked into wearing his first Fed suit. They go and buy their their plain black suits, and Dean's like, I feel like one of the Blues Brothers. Sam teases him that he looks like a seventh grader going to a dance. Dean looks really uncomfortable in a suit, which is hilarious when you think about Dean in later seasons and how careful he is about his appearance and how much he seems to appreciate wearing nice clothes and dressing up. It's just funny to see him react to wearing a suit and tie like it's going to give him the cooties or something because it's it's so jarring with what we know about Dean in later seasons that he had to be talked into wearing a fed suit even though we know that he has played the part of a federal marshal uh, that he's played the part of federal agents in other circumstances. He just never bothered to dress for that part which is weird because you know how did he ever get into any sort of I guess this is the first time they've sort of stepped up their hunting to this level where they're impersonating federal agents to get into a federal locked evidence warehouse you know maybe that's just never come up for them before and they've always been able to work undercover or whatever who knows but it's interesting that Dean has this reaction to wearing a suit (laughs) Black Sabbath's Paranoid plays in the background as they drive to the NTSB warehouse. So there is this literal undercurrent of fear, paranoia of what they're doing, not just about confronting real life fears of monsters and stuff, but fear of the federal government, that they're doing something that's scary to them, even by just portraying themselves as federal agents in on this level. And they pull it off. They They pass through with minimal inquiry into their right to be there and are just waved into the evidence warehouse where this is being stored. Nobody questions them at all. So much as Dean complained about the suit, the suit worked. It helped sell the lie of who they are. We're shown a wide shot of this warehouse where the plane is basically random wires and twisted metal and barely even looks like a plane anymore it's except you can tell where the plane is supposed to be where they're trying to reassemble it on a painted outline of an airplane on the floor and it's just wild to think wow that was that really a plane or is this just like random scraps the nose of the plane is there and enough bits and pieces are there that we're gonna believe that this is a plane But this is also the scene where we see Dean's EMF meter for the first time. Sam is really derogatory toward the poor little EMF meter. Dean's really proud of it because he built it himself from a busted up Walkman. And Sam is like, why does it look like a busted up Walkman? And Dean's like, I built it myself. It's, It's homemade. And he's super proud of this because... Obviously, that's something anyone should be proud of, that they made something useful out of something busted up and complicatedly useful. Like, I could build an EMF meter, you know, without doing a lot of research on it. But Dean whipped one up because he needed one. And Sam is just like, like, don't hate on the EMF meter, Sam. Your brother's a genius. He built this thing from scratch. It's an interesting character difference between them. You know, Sam probably would have been like, well, we need to go buy a professional quality EMF meter. It's like, 
Well, why? When Dean can perfectly well make one out of scrap that you already have on hand. It's funny that even by season two, the EMF meter will become a thing of pride because it's something that they will mock the ghost facers, well, the hellhounds at that point. But it's something they will mock them for having the fancy dancy professional model EMF reader. And even Sam will take a little bit of pride in their homemade version because, you know, At least they're not those guys. (laughs) The EMF does its job, though, no matter how much Sam rolls his eyes or sneers at it. And they find the emergency door handle registers on the EMF meter, but it also has a coating of something on it that they scrape off to test and figure out what it is. And it's shocking that they can't identify it on site because we'll find out later it's sulfur. And that's the main demon sign, you know, you see or smell sulfur. But how could they not smell it, like, baked onto this emergency door handle? Because it wasn't even powder. It was just, it was, like, burned on. It's just funny to me now, in retrospect, that they couldn't recognize sulfur. While they're taking their little sample scraping, two actual Homeland Security officers show up and are questioned, well, what about the guys that are already in there? And, of course... They don't know who Sam and Dean are, so they uh, all go in, gun, you know, guns drawn, realizing they have someone interfering with their crime scene, basically. Sam and Dean hear them and have to sneak out the back and jump a fence, and, oh, Dean jumping a fence. So graceful. The alarms begin going off at the airport, and they jump the fence just in time to escape. We cut back to Chuck, the pilot from the crashed plane, He's working up the nerve to go on his first flight again with a friend of his after the crash. And he looks pretty uh, downtrodden, like he's worried, like he's kind of afraid to fly too now. He's psyching himself up to get get back even in a small little two-engine plane. And while he's in the waiting room waiting, drinking his coffee... Uh, Specky the Wonder Demon comes meandering out of an air, air vent and pops itself right into his eyeballs, <laughs> which, again, no other demon on the show ever does. For some reason, they take the sulfur back to Jerry's office, and for some reason, Jerry has a microscope connected up to a monitor that they can all see what's being analyzed, and I don't know why Jerry would need a microscope in his job as an airline mechanic uh, supervisor kind of guy, airport supervisor. I don't know why he would have a microscope on hand, but he does, conveniently enough. And they determine it's sulfur, and that leads them to believe that demonic possession would explain everything from the sulfur to the strength to open the airplane's emergency exit door in flight to why somebody would even do that. And it's funny because they reference the exorcist floating above a bed and they don't really think of demons as being any sort of more intelligent than just wanting to possess somebody just to possess them. Like they wouldn't have any motives to do so and then agenda to achieve afterwards. It's just to them, demons are just these like mindless creatures of violence and rage. And we will know from future episodes that that is so far from the truth. It's just, it's laughable in this episode that that's their presumption. Once Chuck, the pilot, is possessed by the demon, he's all excited and raring to go up in the plane. As they're flying, his co-pilot is making sure everything's okay. And and Chuck asks 
you know, how long they've been up. When he says about 40 minutes, Chuck replies because he's possessed by the demon. Oh, time really does fly. And then he basically points the plane at the ground and crashes the plane because that's what the demon does. No survivors. He's going to kill everybody that he missed in his first plane crash. I just realized and neglected to mention at the beginning of the episode that this is our first Jerry Wanick motel room as well at the beginning of the episode. And now we're seeing a second Jerry Wanick motel room. The first one with the screen that we associate with Jerry's motels, dividing the front door from the rest of the room. And it's just different kinds of blurred glass, not stained glass, but just different textures of blurred glass in the panels of the divider screen and now in their second motel room it's all heavy you know it was all diamonds in the first motel room now it's all heavy wood paneling even though they're still they still have the same blankets on the beds so I'm thinking maybe they didn't have the budget for multiple different bed clothes yet (laughs) I don't know but there's still this this weird diamond pattern as we go back to this this second motel room Sam has pages from the journal, pages that he's printed out, photos of all sorts of demon possession type lore from different cultures around the world and talking about how every culture has demon possession and what they may have in common or what they may have different that might help them identify exactly what what they're doing. But it's interesting to note that they're still using this, just stick all the th- all the references up on the wall, like this is how they were taught to hunt by John, the same way that John had left the motel room in the pilot episode. We rarely see them actually pin stuff up to the walls like this, but we'll see other hunters do it as well. But Sam and Dean eventually get so good at the lore, they don't bother doing that anymore. And it's kind of an interesting shift as we watch them grow as hunters. This is where Dean says, you know, this isn't our usual gig. This is big. And he's like really worried and is like, I wish dad was here. It's so funny because demons are just so far beyond what they know. And his assumptions about demons only wanting death and destruction and basically being forces of chaos or mayhem that we know demons are so much more than as they're having this emotional crisis over how big a deal this case is to them. Jerry calls back and lets them know about Chuck's death in a plane crash about 60 miles away in Nazareth, which irony that a demon would crash a plane in Nazareth, I guess. (laughs) Um, But they do go out and investigate the crash and they find more sulfur. So from this, they figure out that this demon has crashed six other planes over 10 years knowing that it crashes them 40 minutes into the flight and has never had any survivors until now and now is going back and killing off the people who survived the first crash by crashing them on other planes, which was easy for a pilot and, as we're about to find out, will be easy for a flight attendant. But if I survived a plane crash, I probably wouldn't be eager to hop on another flight (laughs) anytime soon. So... Uh, As Sam calls the remaining survivors, pretending to be a customer service agent from United Britannia Airways, to to find out if they have any plans to fly again, none of them do, which perfectly logical, except for the flight attendant, whose job it is to fly again. Let's also give a shout out for 
what on earth is driving time anyway in the show? It's dark out when they leave to try and chase down the flight attendant who Sam has learned is taking her first flight back on her job after the crash in a few hours at 8 p.m. from Indianapolis. Sam's like, it's a five-hour drive. We're never going to make it from where they were in Pennsylvania. It was already dark where they were. So if they were driving for five hours and it was still only only 8 p.m., what? how on earth were they driving in the dark at like two in the afternoon, three in the afternoon? It's just boggling. It should have been daytime if that's what they were trying to go for. But for some reason, they started in Pennsylvania in the dark five hours before and still managed to arrive to the airport before the 8 p.m. flight took off, still with enough time to try and buy tickets for the plane to track down where this flight attendant was and what flight she was on. And it's just what are what is driving time and what is day and night? Who knows? And, you know, it's it's just funny to me because those are things that get pointed out many times over the years as what on earth were they thinking uh, kind of moments. Like they even lampshaded this one in text with Sam saying, it's a five hour drive. This is what they do. This is you just roll with it because otherwise you'll make yourself crazy. They'd been unsuccessful trying to reach her by phone until they get to the airport and have her paged to the courtesy phone. And Dean passes himself off. He tries to bluff his way into convincing her that her sister, who Sam had spoken to, was injured in a car accident and she couldn't get on the plane. She needed to come to the hospital or whatever, because at this point they were just trying to protect her. They were trying to keep her off that plane because if she's not on the plane, the demon doesn't have a anything to crash, you know. It's it's got its mission. It's got to clean up the survivors from its previous flight before it can move on to crashing more planes. It has to finish its previous job, which is another reason that I think that this demon was, you know, knowing what we do about later canon, whether or not it was intended when this was written, and I sincerely doubt it was. But we can work it into later canon by saying that this demon must have been upping its game here. It messed up and left survivors. Was it told to do that in order to lure Sam and Dean into this case? Because if it had just crashed the plane the way it had been for the previous six times it had done its little deal and left no survivors, nobody would have investigated. No hunter would have ever picked this up. No even if it had been Jerry, he he may not have picked up that there was something weird about this if the demon had done its job correctly. So it's like almost like the demon left them clues deliberately, trying to pull Sam and Dean, maybe even them specifically, into this, not just doing its regular demon thing. So even as Dean is saying, you know, they're one-note creatures of just evil with no other goals or motives we're seeing in the bigger picture of canon, hey, even maybe Specky had a had a motive that we just don't know yet. So Dean bluffs his way onto the phone and the girl, uh, Amanda, does not believe him. He th- knows he's lying about her sister because she just got off the phone with her sister and instead assumes it's that a friend of hers put him up to this, like it was some sort of prank on her, which honestly is a really tasteless prank to pull on somebody who is just going back to work as a flight attendant after having lived through a plane crash. I mean, what kind of friends does this woman have? I question her taste in friends and I hope she finds better friends after this. But 
She doesn't believe Dean and she gets on the plane anyway, which leaves Sam and Dean with zero other options than to get on the plane themselves and confront the demon directly. This is when we find out what Dean truly is afraid of in ways that he's not afraid of the monsters he's been facing his whole life, that he's not afraid of. I mean, he's afraid, but he's learned how to cope with those things. Keeping a knife under his pillow will protect him from monsters, but it will not protect him from commercial airline travel. (laughs) There is nothing to protect him from a plane. He is completely helpless. He's at the mercy of the pilot of the plane and, in this case, of the demon on the plane who intends 100% to crash that plane. They know this plane is going to go down 40 minutes into the flight unless they can stop the demon. So it's guaranteed to go down and Dean still gets on the plane. As Amanda gets on the plane, you see Specky peek out from the vent like, aha, I see you, you're my prey. And it schlucks itself back in. It doesn't possess her, but it's going to possess somebody. Meanwhile, Dean is in abject terror because Sam presents that the only way that they have to stop this demon is to get on the plane. And Sam is seeing Dean in abject terror, but is also completely frustrated because Sam is right. There is only one way to stop this demon is to get on the plane. And there's no other third way. Either they let all these people die or they get on the plane and try and stop the demon. Sam sees Dean too terrified to even act and basically has to push him onto the plane. I don't think Sam has ever really seen Dean in that kind of fear before. And it's interesting how Sam reacts. Sam is, of course, amused by Dean's abject terror because Sam is clearly not afraid of flying. Dean is freaking out, humming to himself. He's humming Metallica to himself, uh, the song Some Kind of Monster, which is funny to me. He also used the alias James Hetfield in, in the airport when he was calling Amanda and lying about his identity. So he's obviously on a Metallica kick, but he says it calms him down, you know, to hum the Metallica song under his breath on the plane. Sam's like, well, you got to get yourself under control. So they're talking about like, how do they, how are they even going to figure out? They've got 32 minutes left to figure out who's possessed, exercise them and save everybody on the plane. But they don't even have any idea who it is that's possessed. And they're talking about all the things that might make someone vulnerable to possession, like as if demons needed any sort of vulnerability in a person other than them being a person in order to possess them. They don't need permission. They don't need, they don't need to find like some impure part of a person or like as Dean was saying, someone who's emotionally unstable or compromised in another way, like through addiction. But that the person doesn't have to be compromised at all. Demon can just cram himself down your throat in every other episode of Supernatural ever, except this one where, you know, the demon needs apparently that sort of vulnerability in a person. And they have no idea how to tell who is demon possessed yet. And I mean, even in later seasons, it's sometimes impossible to tell if someone's demon possessed or not. But they go through this in like a nine step process of first finding out who's possessed. Second, then what do we do? It's like, it's like they're following a manual of the steps of exercising a demon. And I can't not find this funny. Dean volunteers to go 
to the back of the plane to talk to Amanda to, quote, assess her mental state to see if she would be vulnerable to possession. And Sam suggests, well, what if she's already possessed? And something that you could still do in 2005 that you cannot do now was bring water onto a plane. He's got a fancy bottle full of holy water. I just think that's funny because you can't even bring water through security anymore. <laughs> he's he's like, well, what, what are you going to do with the holy water? And he, Dean was just going to splash her with some. It's like, Sam's like, you can't just splash her with holy water. And, and honestly, what would that have done? It would have, if she had been the one possessed by the demon, it would have just pissed off the demon. The demon would have just attacked at that point. And then you're completely unprepared to defend yourself because you're too busy trying to figure out if it even is a demon at first. That's one thing we're going to find out very quickly. The things they do in this episode are kind of laughable in retrospect. So Dean goes back to talk to her. And Sam's advice is demons flinch at the name of God. And he tells Dean to say it in Latin. And in Latin, it's Christo. And everybody who has ever tried to mock the show or make fun of the show or suggest that the show forgot its lore or whatever always brings up Christo because this is the only episode that it gets used in in a serious way. Jack will use it in a way that is used to show that he's inept at hunting on his own and doesn't know the right questions to ask way down the line in season 14. But for now, it's just laughable that Christo, what, what does it even do? Okay, it's like, this is for them to detect if it's a demon or not. To say Christo, if it was a demon, we've see, we see what happens. It flashes its black eyes and then knows that you know it's a demon. What, what else have you achieved by this? The demon can now jump to a new person. It knows it's being hunted. It could just leave the plane entirely, which would obviously solve the problem of this plane won't crash now, but this demon is still on the loose and it's going to go crash another plane that they won't be able to stop because the demon is loose again. So I just want to know, why would any hunter worth his salt use Krista? What, what, what purpose is it? It doesn't hurt the demon. It doesn't stop the demon. It doesn't exercise the demon. It doesn't kill the demon. All it does is let the demon know that you're on to the fact that it's a demon. That's all you've accomplished. And honestly, it makes it more dangerous. It makes it you're all of a sudden you've gone from this demon doesn't know we're hunting it to, oh yeah, this demon knows we're hunters and that we're hunting it. <laughs> so like, why would, what circumstance ever would that be a useful tool to a hunter who has other tools available to them to exercise a demon with a simple exorcism that we will learn is a thing after this episode instead of Sam's ridiculous two-part scary type exorcism that releases the demon from its host making it even more powerful but only then can they exercise it it's like why why on earth would you do this like was this the only exorcism you had on hand because they're so unfamiliar with demons everything about this and how they handle this demon strikes me as, wow, they really had no clue what they were doing because they were really bad at this. And Christo, to me, every time I hear it, it, it makes me think, 
okay, this was back from the we sucked at hunting days. Like, we we had no idea how to hunt a demon days. That's how it's used way later in canon as that same sort of signal. Oh, I know nothing about hunting. I don't even know what I'm hunting, apparently. So that's my defense of why they never used Cristo again. Because it was stupid <laughs> and pointless. But it helped us understand how difficult it was for them learning. That they were on a very steep learning curve here at like 36,000 feet. So I really can't blame them for kind of being all worked up, nervous, and awkward about this. So Dean has a little awkward conversation with Amanda at the back of the plane. He questions, you know, if you're scared of flying, you know, she says, I might be a little bit scared of flying. And he questions, well, if you're scared of flying, have you ever considered other employment? And she says, well, you know, we're all scared of something. We're, I'm just not going to let it hold me back. And Dean gets it. Just like in Wendigo, he connected with the older sister as the parental sibling to, to their other siblings. And they understood each other. And he connected with Lucas's mom last week. They came to an understanding very quickly. He, this is Dean's understanding with her. And it's kind of interesting that Dean, the supposed ladies' man, makes all of these connections with women that have nothing to do with romantic liaisons. Like, he's not hitting on them. He's not, he's not even trying to remotely present himself as hitting on them. He, he's not even using that as subterfuge to get information out of them. He's just connecting with them. And for, for him with Amanda here... It's about fear and how they cope with fear, that they don't let it hold them back, that she's putting on this sort of same veneer that Dean does of confidence, of competence in knowing what their job is and being good at it and knowing how to do it, even when they're afraid of it, and still being able to do it with a smile and a joke and a lightheartedness that is clearly not truly real. And Dean was doing great with his connection with her until he started blurting out Cristo and she didn't catch it. So he says it clearer and the, then it all just turns to awkward hell. But long story short, she is not possessed. So they have no idea who the demon is. So Dean starts walking the aisles with his EMF meter that looks like a busted up Walkman, which is convenient on an airplane because a lot of people use Walkmans on airplanes and, or they did back in the day when people used Walkmans at all. Uh, Walkman, Walkmans, Walkman, whatever. So he's walking with his headphones in and waiting for the meter to go off. And it finally does as he approaches the cockpit because the demon has possessed the co-captain. Uh, before they find out it's in the co-captain, Dean sits back down and he's there. They hit a little bit of turbulence and Dean starts to freak out. Sam tries to tell him to calm down because... Sam tries to tell him to calm down and Dean is like, stow the touchy feely curb and he gets, gets madder and madder. And Sam's like, you need to calm down because you're leaving yourself wide open to demonic possession as if it was Dean's emotional state that made him vulnerable to that. And it, it, it's not, but I mean, it, it kind of also gives you a little bit of insight into the mindset set of hunters that have to confront these scary things that they do that they are good at controlling their own emotional reactions to things because they kind of have to be and the same way that amanda got on this plane dean got on this plane he's confronting his own fear in a very direct way and he is 
doing a remarkably good job at stowing his crap and keeping himself under control, even if we never encounter another demon that requires somebody to be emotionally unbalanced in order to to possess them. <laughs> so I don't know if Specky's just that weak, Sam's just that ignorant, or we don't know, but it's never really explained this way again in any episode of Supernatural ever. We now know that demons flinch at the name of God, and the co-pilot's eyes blackened when Dean said Christo in his presence, and then he went back into the cockpit. Honestly, this part makes no sense to me. They they recruit Amanda to bring the co-pilot back to the back of the plane as if he had any reason to go back there after having been confronted by someone who knew who knew what he was and had identified what he is. Like he's a demon. The this person said Cristo to him and his eyes flash black, look directly at them. Why would he allow himself to be lured out of the cockpit when they're like 12 minutes from his goal of crashing the plane? Sam and Dean ask Amanda to lure him back there and he actually goes. Like, this is definitely the stupidest demon. (laughs) So they have to convince poor Amanda that, you know, the plane is going to crash again, that her friend Chuck is dead and that this plane will go down unless she helps them. So she lures the co-pilot back there and they knock him to the ground, tape his mouth shut and spray him with holy water. And it's like, why on earth would you deliberately just try and hurt him? Like what other effect are you, do you think you're having on him? It's not helping with the exorcism yet until you start actually saying the words right now, you're just pissing him off. Like, why would you just, you know, hurt the guy. It's just not helping. So all these things just, again, strike me as funny (laughs) in retrospect. Like, boy, these guys were really bad at demon hunting. So Dean keeps punching this poor guy in the face and Sam keeps squirting him with holy water instead of reading. He spends all his time telling Amanda to go wait outside the door and don't let anybody in and and giving instructions to her and getting her emotionally under control because she's watching them just beat up this guy on the floor. Like, what have I done? You know, this is terrible. (laughs) This is not normal (laughs) at all. So the demon obviously starts fighting back as soon as Sam starts reading the exorcism, starts kicking and flinging and rips the tape off his mouth and he knocks the holy water away. And he says to Sam specifically taunting him about, I know what happened to your girlfriend. She's still burning. And it's just like, okay, so that makes me really double down on my thought that Specky here was following the plan, following the bigger plan. He knew the bigger plan. He knew exactly who Sam was. It wasn't a coincidence as Dean will try and brush it off later. He wasn't just reading Sam's mind or knowing things about Sam that he could tell from just being in contact with Sam at this point, but that that he was specifically sent here to lure them for this specific purpose. We'll find out eventually that That's basically the entire story of the entire series of Supernatural. (laughs) That is literally what exactly happens to them throughout the entire series. They are being manipulated into these situations for the sake of the story on a very meta level. (laughs) So it's convenient that it starts this early in the series. So he's still steaming from holy, holy water burns and black eyes and his growly, demonic, digitized voice and fighting back against Dean who keeps 
punching him because punching demons is super effective. Eventually, Sam gets the first part of the exorcism accomplished and he goes zipping off into the nearest vent as is his regular modus operandi. But then he's become more powerful. And of course, the plane starts to go down and we get that classic, beautiful shot of Dean bracing himself against an airplane door with a look of abject horror on his face as the lights flicker and the plane begins to go down. And Sam has to crawl from where the demon has knocked the book out of his hands with the rest of the the second half of the exorcism and instead of having to exercise just the guy sam now kind of technically has to exercise the entire airplane so he finishes reading the exorcism and the lights come back on the plane stabilizes and everything goes back to normal sort of except you know dean probably needs new pants at this point just as sam finishes reading the exorcism we see a shot of the outside of the plane And it looks like it's being struck by lightning as if the exorcism wasn't the demon smoking out and being sucked to hell like we we will see later on. But like God literally struck the plane with lightning. And for all we know that that's actually what happened in this particular case. Like, yes, you've succeeded at this mission. Zap. Bye bye, demon. And we don't see it go back to hell. But I have to point out, since I pointed out it went in through the people's eyes in this episode but it came out through the guy's mouth so that's what we will see more standardized in later seasons back on the ground the incident in the airplane was being investigated by the fbi the pilot was wrapped in a blanket in a wheelchair explaining he doesn't remember anything from before he even got on the plane Amanda's being interviewed. We don't know what the fbi thinks happened or what anyone else on the plane thinks happened or why they're even investigating what ended up looking like a lot of turbulence, but, you know, nobody was really hurt or the plane didn't crash. Like, I've been on a lot of flights that were, (laughs) that had incidents that were maybe not quite that scary, but pretty scary. And, you know, I'd never been pulled over for questioning after I left the plane, you know? It's like, never had that happen. That seems a bit overkill because like what even the plane didn't crash it restabilized they it, it seems like the sort of thing that an airline would investigate as to like why did our plane have a mechanical issue like this bad during the flight unless the co-pilot was just that messed up about why he was in the back of the plane unconscious when he came to after he was no longer possessed so maybe who knows this is a mystery to me as someone who's really familiar with air travel so (laughs) but after they leave um the airport they go back to visit jerry and and talk to him about what had happened after dean asks jerry how he got his number in the first place he says he got it from john's voicemail sam had been trying to call john this whole time but his his number's been out of service so john has clearly reconnected the service on his old number he's still unreachable but it's like all of his contacts have now been rerouted to Dean. It's like he was waiting until Dean was ready to accept the mantle of the head hunter in the family. You know, he left him the journal in the pilot episode and he gave him the coordinates in, in the second episode. And then in the third episode, Dean had his own first case that we have seen where he found the case and solved the case. And now John has basically handed the mantle to him with this case that Jerry only knew how to contact Dean 
because John reinstated that number and left the message, I can't be reached, but if you have a problem, call my son. He can help. And it's Dean's number. When this episode originally aired, it was a different phone number than is on the DVD version or the Netflix version now, um, which is a typical Hollywood 555 number that is not a number in anywhere in the U.S. If, if your seven-digit number starts with 555, it's a, it's a Hollywood number. It's fake. It's just used on TV shows. But the number that they gave originally was an 800 number. And you could call it and actually reach Dean's voicemail. And there were like phone messages you could hear from Dean in reality. You know, it was kind of interesting how they they tied that into the show. But that number's long out of service. But there's information about that on the Super Wiki if anyone wants to know what the messages were like. So now Dean is the head of the family now. He is effectively what he has always felt like. Like going back to Wendigo with the the girl who he bonded with in that episode where they were both the parental figure to their siblings. That's kind of how Dean has always thought of himself, but now it's official. John has handed him first. He, you know, handed him the Impala. He handed him, he's wearing John's jacket. It's like, he's been slowly picking up these pieces of what he believes his father is or what he believes his father would want him to do. And he's, making it his own. He's transforming that legacy into his own thing, even though John's kind of forcing it on him by just his absence in general. It's also giving Dean the room to kind of expand into what this fully means for him. Once again, barring anything I've forgotten to mention about this episode... Um, being added on after this. Next week's episode will be season one, episode five, Bloody Mary. And probably things that I forgot to mention in this week's episode. The, all the links that I mentioned in here to Eric Kripke's documents, early script drafts, the early uh, network arena pages. This is also an episode that Jensen and Jared did a commentary track on and if if you want to read what they said on the commentary track that's also on the super wiki I will link to that page for everybody's edification as usual if anyone has any questions or comments or would like to reach out to me personally I can be reached at uh, mittensmorgle at gmail through mittensmorgle on tumblr or Supernatural George on Tumblr. I hope everybody's having a lovely week, and I will talk to you again soon. Or later, Demon Epps. God, I'm starting to talk in Tumblr, aren't I? Epps. Like, what the, what the hell? Do I talk like that? Once again, I'm recording this at like 3 o'clock in the morning, so... Oh, wait. I lied. It's 4 a.m. <laughs> Great! Hmm.